If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, or it's also printed for you in the bulletin. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And it's a good size text this morning, all right, good size text. We won't deal with every verse. We will try to work our way through the major themes of this chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. This is the Apostle Paul writing again. He says, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, you're not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For, for a while there is jealousy and strife among you. Are you not of the flesh? And behaving only in a human way, for when one person says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Verse 10, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. But let each one take care how he builds. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold or silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise. They are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world of life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We again thank you that you have spoken to us. That you have not left us alone, but you have revealed yourself in this, the written pages of Scripture. And so, God, we pray that you would once again come and send your Spirit to be our teacher. That you would open up our hearts and minds to understand what you'd have us to understand. And that ultimately we would leave here seeing again a bigger and brighter picture of that Word who became flesh, Christ Jesus. And that ultimately, Lord, Again, through your spirit, you would empower us to not just be hearers of your word, but doers of your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Parenting is hard. 
I heard a couple snickers. Must be a parent, okay? Parenting is hard. Parenting is difficult. I don't have to tell you that, of course. Some of you know very well. You're in the throes of it currently. Or many of you here have raised children uh, into adulthood. But I'd like to admit that. And, you know, as someone with a six-year-old and a four-year-old, uh, parenting is hard. It's hard. And one of the things, or perhaps the thing that is the hardest for me, especially at this age, is the discipline of a child. The discipline. And the reason it's hard for me isn't because I don't believe in discipline or things like that. Of course not. But I've told myself that when they get older, it'll be very easy. It'll be very easy because you're dealing with big things. Like, it's going to be very easy for me to tell my son, you know, the dangers of, you know, drug abuse, the dangers of, of, of staying out past curfew, uh, the dangers of underage drinking, the dangers of, you know, of sexual immorality, all these kinds of things. The big things that keep us up at night, I keep telling myself, when they get to be that age, well, that's obvious. You know, in, instructing them on those things, what to do, what not to do that will be easy. Again, because it's obvious, they're big things. But in doing that, I've told myself, it's these small things that are kind of hard, because they seem so inconsequential. You know, those big things of the teenage years, those seem obvious. They're major issues. But these things, for a six-year-old and a four-year-old, I mean, it's hard, because they seem so inconsequential. So, for example, if, you know, one of my kids doesn't stay in their bed and they keep coming out repeatedly after bedtime, what's the big deal? What's the big deal, right? Does that deserve, you know, a spanking? If I tell my children, it's time to go, we're leaving the playground now, and they talk back and they run back to the slide over and over and over again, I mean, what's the big deal, right? That's not a big issue. Or, again, you tell them something, and they give that pouty lip. My daughter gives the pouty lip, you know, sucks her thumb, and I immediately melt, okay, and want to then give her whatever it is she's asking for. Again, is that a big deal? Does that have to have, you know, a serious consequence? You see, what we do here as parents is we've, we've kind of drawn this line. There are these lesser offenses, we tell ourselves at least, in that child and parent relationship. That there are these more respectable, again, if you will, respectable forms of disobedience. But what's happening? We fail to realize the same seed is contained in both the major and the minor offenses. So my, my beautiful and wise wife, okay, has reminded me, if my daughter gives that pouty lip, now, what about when she's 16, right? And wants the car and doesn't want to come home. If I don't teach her now, then, again, you, you understand as parents, it can develop into larger things. But again, what happens is we draw that line. There are these respectable, if you will, forms of disobedience, and then the less respectable, major, major issues. Well, a similar thing is happening here in the third chapter of 1 Corinthians. Paul is showing us, if you will, that the same thing, the same thing can be true in the church. 
that we will shine this big spotlight of sermons and programs and efforts and initiatives at the kind of major sins of our culture. And you can list whatever you think those might be. You know, again, sexual morality, you know, uh, financial mismanagement, addiction, uh, infidelity in marriage, you know, whatever it might be, these big major offenses will shine the spotlight of sermons and programs and books at those things. But will often turn a blind eye or just simply neglect and overlook what Jerry Bridges, a great author, Jerry Bridges, calls in a book by the same title what he calls respectable sins. Respectable sins. We'll shine a big spotlight on the obvious sins, the sins of our culture, the sins of our world, but we'll often overlook these things that he names or he calls respectable sins, things that tend to fly under the radar. He puts it in his book this way. Again, the book's called Respectable Sins, and he writes, the motivation for my book stems from a growing conviction that those of us whom I call conservative evangelicals may have become so preoccupied with the major sins of society around us that we have lost sight of the need to deal with our own more refined or subtle sins. Subtle, refined sins. Well, here again in the third chapter of 1 Corinthians, we see Paul address two of these refined sins. Two of these subtle or respectable sins. And again, Paul is doing that as this father figure. He has literally parented the Corinthian church. He planted it. God was the one who used him to birth that church. So he is now their spiritual father, levying this parental admonishment, this parental correction, this parental wisdom. And he does so against, like I said, two issues here in the text. There's a lot of verses here. We could focus on a lot of things, but I want us to see two things. Two respectable sins that Paul wants to eradicate in the Corinthian church and in our churches as well. And the two things are this. Division in the church's members. Division in the church's members. And the second thing is carelessness in the church's mission. Division in the church's members and carelessness in the church's mission. So let's look at those just in turn. We see division easily there in the text. It's specifically there for us in verses 1 through 9. Paul talks about division. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. He's picking up on things he already talked about in chapter 1. This division that had arisen in the church amongst their favorite pastor or favorite leader. And as Paul is now revisiting this issue, if you notice, he can scarcely contain his disappointment. He can scarcely contain his disapproval. And it leads him to enter into this pretty vivid and, and, and imaginative language. If you remember, he does the same thing in Galatians. When he deals with the Galatian church, they were you know, consumed with the issue of circumcision. They were being drawn astray by, by Jewish teachers who came in and told them that in, in addition to Christ, they also had to be circumcised. And so circumcision became this idolatrous issue for them. And if you remember in that book as well, Paul uses very graphic language. 
And he says, I wish those who are telling you to be circumcised would just go the whole way and cut everything off. You go, wow, okay. Nice to see you on a Sunday morning, okay. Nice thing to talk about. But Paul gets, he gets energized. He gets motivated when, it's, when it matters. And the same thing is happening here. His language is just, it's vivid. If you follow it, it's no less dramatic than the language in Galatians. What does he say? He's absolutely, positively shocked, shocked that he has to tell them something so basic. So basic. Don't be divided. Be unified. Don't fracture according to your favorite pastor, your favorite leader. Don't develop silos in the church. Don't develop special interest groups in the church. There's no us and them mentality. There's no dividing line in the church. But he's shocked he has to go over this. It's so basic. It's so childish even. It reminds me of earlier this year I was coaching Wyatt's basketball team. Again, Wyatt's six years of age. Basketball at six years of age is an interesting thing, okay? You can't really call it basketball, but it's close, okay? It's on a court and there's baskets, but it's not basketball, okay? It's just controlled chaos, all right? And it's snack time afterwards. But I was amazed as I was coaching them, I'm a big basketball fan, played in high school, love basketball, okay, it's like my favorite sport. Um, well, I like baseball too. I like every sport, as you're learning. Um, but coaching Wyatt's basketball team, I was amazed and even surprised, really, that I had to go over things so basic. Things like don't lay on the court, okay? <laughs> don't lay down on the court, all right, okay? Uh, don't bring snacks into the game. Wow, okay, you don't see that often on the NBA, you turn it on, right? LeBron James, the hot dog or something, right? Okay, don't bring snacks into the game. And lastly, what was amazing to me was that don't steal the ball from your teammate. Right? As you know, they all want the ball. They all want it. And so they'll take the ball from their own teammate in order to then you know, try it on their own. Things that, again, you know, as someone who played basketball growing up and someone now who watches professional basketball, I forgot, obviously, at the level of a child, what you need, the instructions that you require. It seemed so basic. I took it for granted. And yet, I realized I couldn't. Well, Paul here basically says the same thing. He says, look, when I read your letter, when I read your letter that you had written to me, and when I got the report of what was happening in your church, Paul says, I had to scrap my whole notes. I had to take my letter. I had to take my response, which was full of theological depth, which was full of rich and meaty doctrine, the higher things of God. I had to take all of that. You know what I had to do? I had to take that ribeye and that baked potato and the areco ver, right? Fancy word for green beans, right? Ribeye, baked potato, green beans that I had prepared for you theologically and doctrinally, and I had to get the food processor out. And I had to take that steak, that potato, and put it in the food processor and make baby food. And make baby food. And instead, I had to give you the Gerber, you know, beef and vegetable. All right? That's what I'm giving you. 
I can't believe it. I wanted to address you as spiritually reborn, maturing children of God. That's what he says there in those verses. But instead, I got this report that you're in shouting matches over who your favorite preacher is on staff, that you're in shouting matches and broken down into camps on who your favorite minister is, and you've started to wear T-shirts, you know, wearing the name of the person who baptized you. I'm in Paul's camp, but I'm in Apollos' camp. But what about Peter? I'm in his camp. And there's this division and this silo and this fracturing. And Paul says, you know what? I realized something. I'm not dealing with spiritual grown-ups. I'm dealing with children. With children. That you're not grown-up, you're not mature, you're not so wise, and you don't take church so seriously that you must be commended for it. It's actually the opposite. He says it's like, you know, it's like the case of Benjamin Buttons. Have you seen that movie? The case of Benjamin Buttons. You're aging in reverse. You're aging in reverse. If you saw that movie, it's about a guy who's born and he's like elderly, out of the womb. And then he ages in reverse. He gets younger and younger and younger. Paul says, that's what's happening here in the Corinthian church. You're aging in reverse. You're not maturing. You're not spiritual grown-ups. You're spiritual children. And so the question, the question is, does that still happen today? Does that still happen in our churches? Because again, remember when this letter is written. This letter is written, you know, A.D. 55 to A.D. 60, somewhere in there. In other words, a really, really long time ago. <laughs> A.D. 55, 60, somewhere in there. And yet, we're in 2018, and don't we deal with the same things? The same problems. It's the same human heart that is prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. The same struggles, the same temptations. And so it's driving home for us again, week after week in this text, that there is no, there is no perfect church. There's no perfect church. That we continue to wrestle with the same things throughout the ages but Paul wants to remind them and remind us as well that when we do this, when we make you know, uh, mountains out of theological molehills or ecclesiological, church-related molehills, we make those things into mountains that we're going to die on, hills that we're going to die on, what does Paul tell us? He says, that's not a sign of maturity. That's not a sign that you have graduated past the gospel or beyond the gospel and now can involve yourself in higher things, Paul says it's the opposite. Paul says it's an indication to me that you have not fully grasped the gospel. That you have not fully grasped the depths of the gospel if you're bickering like this. And so again, it's a reminder for all of us, whatever church we find ourselves in, at whatever time period, this is always going to be something we have to guard against, we have to fight against, we have to be diligent against. There's a great quote I love, you've heard me say it before, by St. Augustine, St. Augustine, and he writes, in essentials of the faith, unity. Unity. In the things that matter, unity. In non-essentials, Secondary things, the style of music, the color of the carpet, whether the pastor wears a jacket or not, non-essentials, liberty, liberty. There's freedom, there's freedom. But in all things, 
charity. In all things, charity. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Charity. But the question is, how do we get there? How do we get there? And the answer is found for us in verse 9. In verse 9. If you look there real quickly before we go to the second point, what does Paul end that section on division by saying? He says, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. What is he doing? He's lumping everybody together. What's that common word in all three categories? God, you know, workers, field, building, it's God. So the ministers who come are God's ministers, God's workers. And the church that we're all a part of is God's field and God's building. Not I, not you, it's us. It's us. And so God stands in and through and behind it all, which means then for us that no one person deserves undue elevation in the church. And no one person you know, deserves undue demotion in the church or, or, or trampling upon in the church. That we're all in this together. God's field. God's building. And again, just think about how ironic this would have been for these people. Because earlier in the letter, they're the ones kind of turning the table on Paul. They're the sophisticated Corinthians who are wise and have, you know, they've mastered philosophy and they mastered ideas to the point where they found Paul to be this kind of like, you know, two-bit preacher. And now he's saying what? You can have all the sophistication in the world. You can have all the bells and whistles in the world. But if you have not love, then what? It's nothing. As we know, he'll spend a whole chapter, <laughs> 10 chapters later, unpacking that. You can have all the sophistication in the world, all the bells and whistles in the world, but if you don't love each other, if you don't love each other, then what does it matter? What does it matter? And again, I think that's so instructive for us here at Lake Osborne. It's so instructive for us as we seek to, to grow this church once more, to bring this church into her next chapter of ministry. Because we can become sophisticated, and we can add bells and whistles, and we can do all those things. But what is Paul really saying? He says, you want to change the world? You want to change the world? Just love each other. Love each other. Keep forgiving each other. Keep showing grace to each other. Have a reputation of being so loving and so hospitable and so harmonious that people start to wonder, what's going on over there? And why is that so radical? Because as you know, you can't find that anywhere else in the world. Where are you going to go and find unlimited forgiveness? Every other relationship that you're in, whether it's at work or wherever, is conditional. It's contractual. It's a give and take. Not in the church. Not in the church. Unconditional forgiveness. Unconditional grace. What if my brother sins against me seven times? Is that enough for me to forgive him? No, Christ says. Seventy times seven. Unlimited. 
Again, we can get seduced by sophisticated church, bells and whistle church, and Paul says, that's all fine and well, but make sure in, that, in your chasing of those things, you don't neglect the main thing, the basic thing, which is to love each other, to love each other. And if we don't take Paul's word for it, let's at least take Christ's word for it, right? Because what does he say? How will they know you're my followers? How will they know you're my disciples? By that fish on your car? Nah. By that fancy Bible cover? Nah. By your love. Your love for one another. So again, division in the church's members, Paul wants to eradicate it. Then and now. But secondly, the second respectable sin he addresses here is carelessness of mission. So after talking about division in the church's members, he turns his attention to the carelessness that can happen when it comes to the mission of the church. And this will be a little briefer. Carelessness of mission. You see, Paul here basically is elaborating on that last of three images he gave them in, cha- sorry, in verse 9. Again, he gives them those three images. God's workers, God's field, and then God's building. And here, then, when he wants to get them to not be careless in their mission, he elaborates on that third image. On that third image. That one of a building. A building. And he reminds them that each and every church, regardless of its place, regardless of its time, each and every church, and we sung this a minute ago, each and every church can only have one foundation, if it's a true church. Only have one foundation. And it's the foundation of Christ Jesus. It's the foundation of the gospel. And so that means in the history of a given church, then or now, in the history of a given church, then or now, someone or a group of people are the ones who lay that foundation. Someone or a group of people are the ones who lay that foundation. So again, think in Corinth. Who was it in Corinth? Well, it was Paul. He lays the foundation. Okay, he was the one who planted the church. I came from Coral Ridge, as you know, down in Broward County in Fort Lauderdale. That's where I grew up and was raised and ministered previously. At Coral Ridge, the one who laid the foundation okay, was Dr. Kennedy, D. James Kennedy. All right? He planted the church. Here at Lake Osborne, as we know, this was originally a church plant from Memorial Presbyterian okay, downtown. So a group was sent out to start a Bible study, and they eventually called their first minister. Okay? That, that was the one, or those were the people, who laid that foundation. All right? But Paul says, once that foundation is laid, that foundation is then stewarded. It is tended. It is built upon. And so to use that construction imagery again, it's added to by other craftsmen. Think about when a building is built. The general contractor, you know, the, the concrete guy comes and lays the foundation, but then electricians come in and plumbers come in and drywallers and other contractors, and they add to that foundation. So again, Paul lays it in Corinth, but then Apollos and Peter and others then begin to build upon the foundation for us here, we've had several ministers that God has used to build upon that foundation here in our rich history. 
But Paul wants us to see whether it's then or now, he wants us to be careful. He wants us to be careful that we don't tell ourselves in a given history there's only one way of doing things. There's only one way of doing things. I mean, can you imagine following the Apostle Paul? I thought it was hard to follow Dr. Kennedy, okay? Not me, of course, but there's a bunch of us here. Follow the Apostle Paul? Wow. That's not the way Paul used to do things. Well, who's going to question that? <laughs> it's Paul, okay? But again, that's our mindset in everything that we do. It's in everything that we do. We do the same thing in sports, right? Dan Marino. If you're a Dolphins fan, you only talk about one year, right? 1972, we were undefeated. It's been a long time since 1972. Has anything good happened since 1972? Well, in 84, I think Marino was drafted, right? 83, 84, okay. But then Marino came and, came and went, and now it's been a carousel of quarterbacks. You know, but again, there's always this golden era in our minds, and it's different for each person. It's different for each person. There's always a golden era, okay? But Paul wants us to see that that tendency, that tendency is normal, but it can be dangerous. It can be dangerous. It can be dangerous. But he does want them to realize that every person in God's building Every person in God's field does, though, have a responsibility on how they will build on that foundation. And that's the important part. So if Paul wants them to guard themselves against that kind of, you know, pecking order of ministers and pecking order of, of histories and golden eras, we want to safeguard against that. He wants them to react against that. But he wants them to be proactive in the other way and realize what? That wherever we find ourselves, though, in the history of a given church, we do, though, have the responsibility to be good stewards. We do, though, have the responsibility to be careful how we are building and how we are adding to that church's foundation. And so, again, to use the construction metaphor, are we going to come in and build with quality materials that will last? Or will we cut corners? Will we follow the architectural plan? Or will we make our own plan? Will we truly see it as our lives work? Or will we just be there, if I'm a minister, you know, for the paycheck? Or will it be a calling? Will it be a calling? And that's what Paul is getting at there in the end of that section. When he says, be careful how you build with gold or precious metal, things that will be refined in the day of judgment, and avoid building with hay and wood and straw, things that will be burned up in the day of judgment. What does that mean? What does that mean? Paul's just saying what? Be careful as a church that you don't focus your resources and your efforts, your time on peripheral things. Things that don't matter, programs and initiatives and ministries that might help to grow the church wide, but don't grow the church deep. Instead, focus your time and your resources and your ministries on foundational things. Foundational things. Worship, Bible study, evangelism, discipleship, 
preparing the next generation. Again, things that have staying power, things that have eternal significance, things that are not careless, not a careless mission, but a concrete mission. And the motivation for doing that as we close is found then in verses 16 and 17 when Paul reminds them and us of one incredible thing. He says, how do you maintain that posture of good stewardship in the church? By remembering who you are. Remembering who you are. Or better yet, remembering whose you are. You're God's. You belong to God. And what? You are God's temple. We are God's temple. Don't miss how radical that is for Paul to tell a Gentile audience that they are now the place where the Spirit of God dwells. Because remember previously when Solomon's temple stood, what happened there? If you're a Gentile, you didn't have the same access as a child of Israel. And now, he says what? The church that pan-national gathering of people, men and women, under the lordship of Christ Jesus. You are God's temple. You are the place where God's spirit dwells. What an amazing identity. But what does it mean for us? It means that we don't have the right to just do church however we want. It's not ours. It's God's. It's God's temple. And he has given us Means of grace, once for all. Preaching, the Lord's table, prayer, things like that. So we don't have to go out and invent new things. We simply use the means of grace that he has given us once for all. And so my prayer here at Lake Osborne, my prayer here, and you've heard me now say this a number of times throughout this, this series, is not that we'll become a perfect church. Because we won't. We won't. But we will be a church that does the basics well. That we'll be a church that does the basics well. That here, you know, the, the, to use a great phrase, the, the good news will not become old news. That we won't get distracted by trends and, and peripheral programs and activities. But we'll realize something in this text. That God has given us those two things. He's given us one apologetic for the watching world. One defense of the faith for the watching world. What is that apologetic? It's our love for each other. It's our love for each other. That's what the world sees, first and foremost. Our love for each other. May we be a place where they see loving and hospitable people. And then secondly, he's given us one mission, one mission, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. We never move past those things. We never move past those things. And that's why Paul, at the end of the text, says, look, if you want to become wise in the world, go for it. But become a fool. Become a fool. And realize it's those basics that seem foolish but it's those basics that God has always used to change the world. And that's the same reminder for us this morning. I'll close with this. Uh, Vince Lombardi, many of you know, right? Famous football coach, Vince Lombardi. 1961, the Green Bay Packers 
had just come off a loss in the championship game the year before. There was no Super Bowl yet. This predates the Super Bowl. They hadn't had that merger yet of the two football leagues. So Vince Lombardi, Green Bay Packers, lost their league's championship the year before. Okay? They come the next year to training camp. What do they expect? Vince Lombardi is going to come and install some new and fancy offense. He's going to come and install some new and fancy defense. Some extraordinary wisdom. They're going to go more advanced and beyond anything they've ever done before. Yeah, first day of training camp, and many of you have heard this story before. First day of training camp, Vince Lombardi walks in, and he holds a football. Holds a football. And he says, gentlemen, this is a football. This is a football. And he goes down the line and proceeds to tell them the basics again. And this is a football field. And the goal is to take the ball from this end to that end more times than your opponent does. And he has them learn to tackle again, and to block again, and to pass again, and to catch again. And some of the veterans on the team, you know, they're, if not offended, they're at least laughing. Coach, aren't we past this? Aren't we past this? But he realized something. He realized you never move, you never move past the basics. You just learn to do them better. You just learn to do them better. Because the basics are what actually lead then to that advanced desire we all have, which is what? To win. And the same thing is true, again, in the church. We never move, move past the basics. Love for each other and a love for the lost. And those are the things that God has and always will use to not only change us, but to change the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its convicting and encouraging and transforming power, even here and now, so long after it's written. And yet we we remind, Lord, that it's because we have the same human heart, prone to sin, prone to wander, prone to deceive us. And so, God, we pray that through your word, you would continue to transform us. You would continue to conform us more and more into your image. And that here, collectively at Lake Osborne, you continue to reorient our thinking along the lines of the gospel, gospel priorities, where up is down, down is up. The first will be last, the last will be first. God, may we be people who strive to outdo each other in showing honor, to outdo each other in our service and our love for each other and for our community. So again, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it's challenged us. We pray now that you would send us out in that zeal. Again, seeking to be doers of this great word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.